listening to Reading Books with Nudie. We are reading A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett right now. Remember the seventh chapter, so long? And last week, well, Monday, we heard the third part of it? Today, we're going to finally finish it. Speaking of Monday's episode, you probably, some of you, noticed that it was about two minutes long, or three, almost three. I'm very sorry about that. I thought I uploaded the whole episode, but I only uploaded part of it. My sister listened to it while she wasn't in school, and then she told me. So I changed it, and now it's almost 13 minutes long. So if you haven't heard it, you better go listen to it. Otherwise, you won't understand the story. So we will hear the last part of our chapter today and the newest jingle from the Jingle Book by Carolyn Wells. If you can, please leave a rating or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. It helps the podcast be more publicized and everything helps. I already got one review on iTunes. Thank you very much, Satin Slippers. If you want to say hi, send me an email at readingbookswithnudie at gmail.com. Like I mentioned in the last episode, I have about 11 listeners and the number might grow. Two of them have already written to me, my sister and my mom. So we have three out of 11 accounted for. Do you remember what happened in the last episode? Miss Minchin had caught Becky under the table crying. And then everything had been returned to normal, and Sarah had been sent to talk to Miss Minchin. Let's see what happens. Tell Sarah to come to my room, Miss Minchin had said to her sister, and explain to her clearly that I will have no crying or unpleasant scenes. Sister, replied Miss Amelia, she is the strangest child I ever saw. She has actually made no fuss at all. You remember she made none when Captain Crewe went to India? When I told her what had happened, she just stood quite still and looked at me without making a sound. Her eyes seemed to get bigger and bigger, and she went quite pale. When I had finished, she still stood staring for a few seconds, and then her chin began to shake, and she turned around and ran out of the room upstairs. Several of the other children began to cry, but she did not seem to hear them or to be alive to anything but just what I was saying. It made me feel quite queer not to be answered, and when you tell anything sudden and strange, you expect people will say something, whatever it is. Nobody but Sarah herself ever knew what had happened in her room after she had run upstairs and locked her door. In fact, she herself scarcely remembered anything but that she walked up and down, saying over and over to herself in a voice which did not seem her own, "'My papa is dead!' My papa is dead. Once she stopped before Emily, who sat watching her from her chair, and cried out wildly, Emily, do you hear? Do you hear? Papa is dead. He is dead in India, thousands of miles away. When she came into Miss Minchin's sitting room in answer to her summons, her face was white and her eyes had dark rings around them. Her mouth had set as if she did not wish it to reveal what she had suffered and was suffering. She did not look in the least like the rose-colored butterfly child who had flown about from one of her treasures to the other in the decorated schoolroom. She looked instead a strange, desolate, almost grotesque little figure. She had put on, without Marriott's help, the cast-aside black velvet frock 
It was too short and tight, and her slender legs looked long and thin, showing themselves from beneath the brief skirt. As she had not found a piece of black ribbon, her short, thick black hair tumbled loosely about her face and contrasted strongly with its pallor. She held Emily tightly in one arm, and Emily was swathed in a piece of black material. "'Put down your doll,' said Miss Minchin. "'What do you mean by bringing her here?' "'No,' Sarah answered. "'I will not put her down. She is all I have. My papa gave her to me.' She had always made Miss Minchin feel secretly uncomfortable, and she did so now. She did not speak with rudeness so much as with a cold steadiness with which Miss Minchin felt it difficult to cope, perhaps because she knew she was doing a heartless and inhuman thing. "'You will have no time for dolls in the future,' she said. "'You will have to work and improve yourself and make yourself useful.' Sarah kept her big, strange eyes fixed on her and said not a word. "'Everything will be different now,' Miss Minchin went on. I suppose Miss Amelia has explained matters to you. Yes, answered Sarah. My papa is dead. He left me no money. I am quite poor. You are a beggar, said Miss Minchin, her temper rising at the recollection of what all this meant. It appears that you have no relations and no home, and no one to take care of you. For a moment, the thin, pale little face twitched, but Sarah again said nothing. "'What are you staring at?' demanded Miss Minchin sharply. "'Are you so stupid that you cannot understand? "'I tell you that you are quite alone in the world "'and have no one to do anything for you, "'unless I choose to keep you here out of charity.' "'I understand,' answered Sarah in a low tone, "'and there was a sound as if she had gulped down something "'which rose in her throat. "'I understand.' cried Miss Minchin, pointing to the splendid birthday gift seated near. That ridiculous doll, with all her nonsensical extravagant things, I actually paid the bill for her. Sarah turned her head toward the chair. The last doll, she said. The last doll. And her little mournful voice had an odd sound. The last doll indeed, said Miss Minchin. And she is mine, not yours. Everything you own is mine. Please take it away from me, then, said Sarah. I do not want it. If she had cried and sobbed and seemed frightened, Miss Minchin might almost have had more patience with her. She was a woman who liked to domineer and feel her power, and as she looked at Sarah's pale little steadfast face and heard her proud little voice, she quite felt as if her might was being set at naught. "'Don't put on grand airs,' she said. "'The time for that sort of thing is past. You are not a princess any longer. Your carriage and your pony will be sent away. Your maid will be dismissed.' You will wear your oldest and plainest clothes. Your extravagant ones are no longer suited to your station. You are like Becky. You must work for your living. To her surprise, a faint gleam of light came into the child's eyes, a shade of relief. Can I work? she said. 
If I can work, it will not matter so much. What can I do? You can do anything you are told, was the answer. You are a sharp child and pick up things readily. If you make yourself useful, I may let you stay here. You speak French well and you can help with the law. And you can help with the younger children. May I? exclaimed Sarah. Oh, please let me. I know I can teach them. I like them and they like me. Don't talk nonsense about people liking you, said Miss Minchin. You will have to do more than teach the little ones. You will run errands and help in the kitchen as well as in the schoolroom. If you don't please me, you will be sent away. Remember that. Now go. Sarah stood still just a moment, looking at her. In her young soul, she was thinking deep and strange things. Then she turned to leave the room. Stop, said Miss Minchin. Don't you intend to thank me? Sarah paused and all the deep, strange thoughts surged up in her breast. "'What for?' she said. "'For my kindness to you,' replied Miss Minchin. "'For my kindness in giving you a home.' Sarah made two or three steps toward her. Her thin little chest heaved up and down, and she spoke in a strange, unchildishly fierce way. "'You are not kind,' she said. You are not kind, and it is not a home. And she had turned and run out of the room before Miss Minchin could stop her or do anything but stare after her with stony anger. She went up the stairs slowly, but panting for breath, and she held Emily tight against her side. I wish she could talk, she said to herself. If she could speak, if she could speak. She meant to go to her room and lie down on the tiger skin, with her cheek upon the great cat's head, and look into the fire and think and think and think. But just before she reached the landing, Miss Amelia came out of the door and closed it behind her, and stood before it, looking nervous and awkward. The truth was that she felt secretly ashamed of the thing she had been ordered to do. You, you are not to go in there, she said. Not go in, exclaimed Sarah and she fell back a pace. "'That is not your room now,' Miss Amelia answered, reddening a little. Somehow, all at once, Sarah understood. She realized that this was the beginning of the change Miss Minchin had spoken of. "'Where is my room?' she asked, hoping very much that her voice did not shake. "'You are to sleep in the attic next to Becky.' Sarah knew where it was. Becky had told her about it, she turned and mounted up two flights of stairs. The last one was narrow and covered with shabby strips of old carpet. She felt as if she were walking away and leaving far behind her the world in which that other child, who no longer seemed herself, had lived. This child, in her short, tight old frock, climbing the stairs to the attic, was quite a different creature. When she reached the attic door and opened it, her heart gave a dreary little thump. Then she shut the door and stood against it and looked about her. Yes, this was another world. The room had a slanting roof and was whitewashed. The whitewash was dingy and had fallen off in places. There was a rusty grate, an old iron bedstead, and a hard bed covered with a faded coverlet. Some pieces of furniture too much worn to be used downstairs had been sent up. 
Under the skylight in the roof, which showed nothing but an oblong piece of dull gray sky, there stood an old battered red footstool. Sarah went to it and sat down. She seldom cried. She did not cry now. She laid Emily across her knees and put her face down upon her and her arms around her and sat there, her little black head resting on the black draperies, not saying one word, not making one sound. And as she sat in this silence, there came a low tap at the door, such a low, humble one that she did not at first hear it, and, indeed, was not roused until the door was timidly pushed open and a poor, tear-smeared face appeared peeping round it. It was Becky's face, and Becky had been crying furtively for hours and rubbing her eyes with her kitchen apron until she looked strange indeed. Oh, miss, she said under her breath, might I, would you allow me just to come in? Sarah lifted her head and looked at her. She tried to begin a smile, and somehow she could not. Suddenly, and it was all through the loving mournfulness of Becky's streaming eyes, her face looked more like a child's not so much too old for her years. She held out her hand and gave a little sob. Oh, Becky, she said. I told you we were just the same. Only two little girls. Just two little girls. You see how it is. There's no difference now. I'm not a princess anymore. Becky ran to her and caught her hand and hugged it to her breast, kneeling beside her and sobbing with love and pain. Yes, miss, you are, she cried, and her words were all broken. Whatsoever happens to you, whatsoever, you'd be a princess all the same, and nothing couldn't make you nothing different. Well, that was a very sad part of the chapter, wasn't it? It was for me. Do you think we should do the jingle, or just leave it on this sad note? No? You want to end on a good note? Okay. Uh, do you have the jingle? Or, or did you put it with my papers? Oh, oh, okay. Oh yeah, here it is, thanks. This jingle is called The Funny Kittens. Once there were some silly kittens, and they knitted molly mittens to bestow upon the freezing hottentots. But the hottentots refused them, saying that they never used them, unless crocheted of red with yellow spots. So the silly little kittens took their blue and white striped mittens to a bear who lived within a hollow tree. The bear responded sadly, I would wear your mittens gladly, but I fear they are too gay for such as me. Then the kittens, almost weeping, came to where a cow lay sleeping, and they woke her with this piteous request. Won't you wear our mittens furry? said the cow. My dears, don't worry. I will put them on as soon as I am dressed. Then the cow put on her bonnet with a wreath of roses on it and a beautiful mantilla fringed with white. And she donned the pretty mittens, while the silly little kittens clapped their paws in admiration at the sight. Would you like to wear mittens made by kittens? Would you wear them more in the summer or the winter? Don't you think they would have cat hairs in them? How do you think the kittens felt after the hot and tods, whatever they are, and the bear refused them? 
What about when the cow accepted? Tell me if you like at my email, readingbookswithnudie at gmail.com. And that's the end of our episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. Come back on Monday when we will hear the eighth chapter of our book. Have a great weekend. Extra large thanks to Epidemic Sound for the songs and sound you heard today. And Moonside's thanks to Project Gutenberg for the books we read. Also thanks to a listener who provided those big synonyms.